Time Broadcaster Podcast. It's only fitting and apropos we bring on the radio voice of the National Sounds, which will open their season on May the 4th against the Mud Hens of Toledo. If that team name sounds familiar, it does, because they are the AAA affiliate and longtime AAA affiliate of the Detroit Tigers. But the voice of the Nashville Sounds, Jeff Hem, is my guest today on the Blind Broadcaster Podcast. Please rate, subscribe, and review this year's podcast on Apple Music and your favorite podcast platforms. Ratings and reviews help folks and people find this year's podcast much easier. If you have suggestions or ideas for guests you'd like to have and hear on this podcast, shoot me direct email at luther.king.tsb at gmail.com. Facebook me, same way. Or you can tweet me at king underscore tsb. And we'll do our best to see what we can do on that. Without further ado, Voice of the Sounds, Jeff Him. Here with episode 47 of the Blind Broadcaster Podcast. For interview 25, episode whatever it is, joined by another local broadcaster who's the current voice of Sounds Baseball. And he's been the voice of Sounds Baseball what, since 2012. Yep, that's it. Luther, good to be with you. Thanks for having me today. You're welcome. So give me an idea of, at the high school level, were there any opportunities for broadcast and when did you know or was there something that said, hey, broadcasting is something that I want to do? For me, it happened kind of late in the game compared to how it works it seems like these days for a lot of guys um you know i like like almost anybody in broadcasting i loved sports and followed sports for as long as i can remember even as a little kid but i am while i listen to games and watched games as you know an eight-year-old or nine-year-old i i am not one who has the story like some do of i knew i wanted to be a broadcaster since the age of eight uh, it just didn't work that way for me. I, I really didn't, it didn't click for me as a career option until late in college. Uh, I was about a, a sophomore going into my junior year of college at the University of Iowa when I realized um, what I wanted to do. I initially went to college uh, planning to be a teacher because I knew that if I were a teacher, I could also be a coach and that was going to be my way of staying connected to sports. I knew I wanted to do something with athletics, but I truly hadn't um, fully grasped the idea that uh, announcing could be a career. In fact, I've told this story before. I remember being home for Christmas break at one point during college, and we had our whole extended family over to my my parents' house. And it sort of became this uh, like open-ended group conversation of like, let's help Jeff figure out what he wants to do for the rest of his life. Cause I was going back and forth. I wanted to be a history teacher. I wanted to, uh, for, for like a weekend in college at one point, I wanted to be pre-med. I thought maybe I wanted to be a doctor. I just, I just didn't know. And my, one of my uncles said, what would you do? Uh, if take money out of it for a second, uh, what would you, what would you love to do? 
and it kind of clicked that that sports broadcasting was the answer to that question and that kind of refocused me I switched majors to journalism I got involved with the student radio station at Iowa I ended up trying some play-by-play uh, on my own and and within the student station and and immediately uh, knew then okay yeah this is what I had long been looking for this is what I want to do whereas now I meet plenty of guys who reach out to me and they like you said they're in high school and they already have like a demo tape and they already have you know a lot of high schools now have their own tv little stations and mm-hmm. and radio stations and, yep. and it just was not it wasn't quite as widespread even at iowa at the collegiate level they were just starting to get a student produced tv station uh, the radio station was going to get an upgrade of equipment and their studio space. And that was going to, after I graduated, that kind of took on another level. So it just wasn't quite there both for the facilities back then in the early two thousands. And for me personally, until kind of late in the game. Um, So I tell guys all the time who reach out to me, I say, look, if you are a junior in high school or whatever the case may be, and you already know this is what you want to do, you are miles ahead of where I was at that age. Uh, Looking back, there's so much more I could have done and should have done. uh, Even while I was still at Iowa as a junior and senior, I could have done more than I did. I got really lucky in some senses to get into the business the way I did because it, it did kind of develop late for me. You're making up for lost time, my friend. You're making up for well, lost time. Trying to, <laughs> trying to. There's a, you know, woulda, coulda, shoulda, and hindsight is twenty twenty. All those different phrases, uh, they they're true oftentimes. And um, all, all I try to do now is just help help the younger guys figure that out the way I did not. So you were doing pretty much almost all of the athletics, but when did you decide on baseball as your number one or was that just one of those that just fell in your lap yeah it kind of fell on my it fell on my lap I mean I think if you're a if you're a college student ending school and looking for full-time employment I think part of the reason that baseball and more specifically minor league baseball becomes so attractive is the volume of games and the volume of teams I mean it literally is easier in my opinion to find not that it's easy, but it's easier to find a job in minor league baseball because of the, the odds of getting a job, the volume of teams, than it is say, hey, I love football. I want to be a football broadcaster. Okay, well, you're really, you're really relegated to uh, you know, uh, college football or the NFL, and it's hard to get an NFL job as it is, certainly right out of college. So I think, I think that's part of it. That was part of it for me. Baseball was sort of the first love. Uh, but I don't remember a conscious decision of, yes, I'm going for baseball or no, I'm not going to try to get a basketball job. Um, I, I reached out to some people who were already in the industry when I was late in college and they, they had gone, the, they were either in or had done the minor league baseball route. And so they kind of advised me to give that a try and to start contacting teams. And, and that's how it kind of evolved. And then once I got um, into it, I then started to look for, uh, football and basketball opportunities without having to give up the baseball. And that's kind of how I got into where I'm at now, I guess, where I'm, I'm, I'm kind of doing all three, but not having to commit to only one or the other. Because I remember hearing you and I had no idea who you were when I could actually pick up the King County Cougars for a little bit. Yeah. But I'm like, who is that guy? I'm like, because I, I swear, I didn't even know who you were, to be honest with you. And well, I, yeah, I, 
because it was, I don't know. But yeah, I, th- I think that, I mean, you know, a, there aren't a lot was, of household names in the minor leagues anyway in, in, the, in the broadcasting world. And there isn't sometimes a lot of rhyme or reason geographically in terms of who, who lands a job where I was very fortunate to, to end up in Kane County because I grew up in suburban Chicago and those were sort of home games for me um, from a career standpoint, you know, you, you, you can only um, get a job where there is an opening. And mm-hmm. I, I got fortunate that there ended up as an opening going into the 2005 season uh, after I'd been an intern for a team in Michigan in 04 the Kane County job ended up uh, opening and I was able to land it. And that, that turned out to be huge for me. First of all, they were a really good uh, and still are a good operation, a good team to work for a lot of great people, very successful franchise, but it also allowed me to live with my parents for a little bit, save up some money. I wasn't married yet. So it, it couldn't have worked out better for me from that standpoint. Um, but you know, you know, I landed in Nashville and love it. And I'm so thankful that I did but there were other opportunities that I had applied for from Kane County to try to get to that I didn't get. And then, you know, this is the way life works. You, you, you know, I end up landing the Nashville job for 2012. And now I'm thinking, man, I'm, I'm kind of glad those other jobs that I applied <laughs> for uh, along the way that I didn't get them because you can't, like I said, you, you know, you can't always choose where the openings are going to come. And, you know, I feel like I'm in one of the great cities uh, in the country one of the great teams to work for in the minor league baseball world. And so I'm just, I'm very, very fortunate the way the, uh, the way I've jumped uh, from where I've jumped to. And um, because it's, it's not, you can't just say, well, I want that job. Somebody has to hire you for it. And I've been fortunate uh, to work for the teams that I'm with. So when did you really start doing preparation like how did preparation change from when you were doing college uh, your first gig in the broadcast world to now Ooh, good question um and there's you know I, I i know i know i'm coming out of left field with this but i don't no, ask okay. a lot of broadcasters this question because at the high school level you you know this because you and i you know i do one school you handle the state tournament but you know there's not a lot of information at the high school level, but yep. you can, you know, talk to coaches and SIDs, but at the high school level, you don't get many SIDs. You're, get, you're getting the athletic director, you're getting the coaches. So how right. much information can you really get besides, you know, being around the teams, which you're not around? Yeah. it's Especially it's a on question. a day in day out basis. basis. No, you're right. People ask me all the time, like for the, for the sounds games, you know, how do you, how do you prepare? How do you fill all that time? You know, it's day after day. And my answer is, in a lot of ways, uh, the day after day nature of the season is the prep. You you learn yeah. the ins and outs of the team just literally by calling all the games. I travel with the team. I'm around the team hours every day. I, I'm yeah. with the manager a lot. Buses, airplanes, exactly. Early morning, um, early morning, four a.m. wake up calls. No doubt, and it's and it's why it's why I love doing the different sports because not only are the sports themselves different, the preparation, like you alluded to, is different for all of them. And it's it's I, I enjoy that part of it. I enjoy how different getting ready for a Friday basketball game is compared to a Tuesday baseball game when it's mm-hmm. the 18th game uh, in a row, 18th game in 18 days. They're just so different. 
Um, and, and even the baseball prep has evolved from when I started to where it is now in terms of uh, the internet has only grown more. There's only more information than there was. I think the biggest thing with baseball preparation, we get such great information from the PR staffs and media relations staffs of game notes and stat packs. The job, the, the job for baseball really is finding out out of the mountains of information, what is important and taking out the stuff that may not matter, but still knowing where it is. If you need to look something up in the middle of a game, mm-hmm. you know, I don't necessarily fill out my baseball book every day with uh, the last sound to hit three homers in a game, but I know exactly where that is in the media guide mm-hmm. if I need to go look it up. Um, with with the basketball and football work that I do, um, it, the advantage, I guess, in an odd way, because with baseball, I, I can't really prep for, like, let's say we're on a Tuesday. I really can't prep for Friday's baseball game until – until you get ways, to that day. Right. Or close Tuesday, to Wednesday, and Thursday are have played out. But also, until I get the lineup for that game, because, uh, you know, by Friday, three of those players could have been called up to the big leagues. One might be hurt. One got sent down. Or the, manager, the, starting, or the manager doesn't want to use him, use a particular right. guy that day. Or I don't know the starting pitcher for the other team who's coming in. So my prep in some ways for baseball is day after day, but at the same time, there is that moment kind of early to mid afternoon for the game that night where you do sit down and say, okay, here's my lineup. Let me fill out my book. Let me prepare for this game (coughs) specifically with, with basketball. um, You know, if I know on a Monday, most of the time I know uh, after a Friday night game, we already know our matchup, like with the channel 30 uh, TV games that I do, we already know, our matchup for that next week. And I can Mm -hmm. start on Saturday morning in a sense, looking up, okay, what are the teams we have next week do last night? And usually what I'll do, you know, as you know, in high school basketball in Tennessee, Mm -hmm. um, usually they play on a Tuesday and they play on a Friday. Friday, Unless they're in tournaments. Exactly. And you're you're probably going to play like, if it's the girls, if you're playing at a three-day event, you may be playing on a Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Or if it's a boys thing, you're maybe playing – a classic and you're not playing all three days, but you may be playing too. Yeah. And so, so I'll know, I'll know who we're going to have on Friday night. And like you said, the, the biggest thing with the high school games that I do is I have to talk to the coaches. Yeah. Um, I don't say have to, meaning the guys I'm working with mandated. I, I just know I can't do the game without the information that I'm going to get from the coaches, but because they're going to have a game that Tuesday night, I don't reach out to them until Wednesday, because I know their mind is not thinking about Friday until Tuesday's game is over. So usually on Wednesday morning, I'll email the coaches and say, hey, I'm excited to have your game on Friday. Uh, And, you know, I've done this for a few years now. A lot of them I've developed a relationship. I already have their information. But sometimes you're reaching out kind of blindly. And I'll just say, uh, you know, we got your game Friday. Would love to get a few minutes with you. Um, and, and, the, and the television station is already sending out emails to them asking for rosters and stats, but, and that's all great. And you've got to get that. But the biggest thing is just talking with the coaches and finding out, you know, yeah, so-and-so is listed on the roster, but he hurt his knee last night. I don't think we're going to have him. That's gold. You yeah. Cause have I, that. I will always, you know, if there's a player that's not going to play, I always ask him to just, you know, take out, that number and that player. So I don't have to worry about, you know, mentioning them, even though they're on, you know, they're on the roster, they're just not going to play. Right. Or that's a storyline because they don't have that player. You want to be able to mention that here's, you know, this game matters because their Mm -hmm. best player is hurt or whatever. Um, So a lot of the games, 
a lot of the prep is done that week over the course of that week for the one Friday game. And that's just so different uh, than the baseball world. But the other unique situation within the basketball that I do, and you, you live this too, is, Mm -hmm. you know, you say, okay, I I know I'm going to work some of the state tournament games for the TSSAA uh, and I wish I would have done that this year. But well, I'm just saying I, I'm, I'm I'm speaking from my from my yeah. standpoint, from the prep standpoint. I sure. you know I might know a couple of weeks out that I'm going to have it, but I don't know my games yet, or I don't know the right. teams involved. So there is sort of this like this hurry up and wait, or this wait and then hurry up because you know you get the bracket uh, on a on a you know, I find out my assignment or whatever on a on a Monday and the games might be starting on Wednesday, or I know I've got the Friday game and I need to, I need to let the quarterfinals play out before I can figure out exactly who the semifinals are going to be. And in fact, with, before the, uh, this COVID-19 pandemic shut everything down, I was that, you know, that week where everything kind of unfolded and the NBA uh, shut it down and everybody sort of subsequently shut down that conference yep. tournament week. I was going to have games on that Friday and Saturday. And on that Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, I was doing my prep. I was following the brackets. And at one point I was, I was researching four teams knowing I was only going to have two of them, but I didn't want to wait around until their games Friday. were done on the Wednesday to find yep. the Thursday to figure out who's going to play Friday. So I started preparing for all four mm-hmm. and, and then I got word that none of it was going to happen. And I thought I put in all this work for four teams and now I'm going to, I'm going to call the game for zero of them, but that was just the nature of the world at that time. But that's, uh, so that was just the weirded answer thing. to of your question about the prep. It's, they're all different. And some of it, you can, you, some sports at some events, you can only prep so much, for an advance and others, you can, you know, you can spend a week preparing for one game. And that's kind of how the, like the football works for me when the blue cross bowl championships come around uh, the nature of football, they're not going to play more than one game in a week. So Mm -hmm. on that Saturday morning, I know, Hey, I've got the four a championship. I can start prepping for those teams. And I got a week to reach out to the coaches and to look up all the old articles and box scores. Yeah. And I mean, it was interesting because I'm like, wow, the Maplewood Bacon County game, I was going to have that one, but unfortunately things came up and that was an early morning tip, but I got updates on it. And then when that game ended, then all the other games are taking place. And then I wake up on Friday morning and saying that the tournament could be shut down. And then yep. all of a sudden we found out that boom, it was. So yep. really, we really had no state champion this year. No, no. And there's which is the first time that a virus has basically just shut everything down. Like, ever it's very strange it's very it's very sad i think i think now though we realize how smart all these leagues and levels and organizations were to do this i think at the time you know it seemed so dramatic what we're not going to have an ncaa tournament and that mm-hmm. you know and that was so heartbreaking at the time but now you look at all the stats with this thing and you're like you're wondering maybe, maybe it was a blessing Right, a blessing, and you're thinking, man, what if they – maybe they should have shut everything down, you know, a month out before all that. And, and it's just like the, every second mattered so much, we realize now, uh, compared to what we thought in early March when one by one they were all kind of falling by the wayside. Yeah, I mean, because if I'm not mistaken, the Big Ten, after one of their games, their – tournament got closed down and then all of a sudden all the other ones, the SEC, and then the next thing you know, all the tournaments were shut down and then Kansas and Duke pulls off, pulls out of the tournament and then the whole tournament goes. Yep. And it's like, wow, 
this thing has really just shut everything down at a dramatic level. Yep. The but economy, they, you know, the economy shut down, but hey, a lot of folks are like, when are we going to get back to normal? Here's the thing. We don't know. We right. don't know what the new normal is going to be like, feel like, look like, or in my case, what's going to be my new normal as a blind person? That's yeah. why you're trying to do this. Yeah. What's we, it going to be like? Yeah. We all have more questions than answers and that's, um, it's not fun, I think, but first and foremost, we just have to stay healthy and everything else is so secondary to that. Uh, at least for now, that's, mm -hmm. that's just first and foremost. And, and that's the way I'm, that's the way I'm trying to follow it. I, I love baseball. I love my job. I love calling games and I want all of it to continue, but none of that matters if I don't stay healthy. And I'm just speaking for me individually, the way hopefully a lot of us are all kind of just thinking about this, that it's, it's, uh, it's just scary and, and sad. Uh, yeah. And, and, and with, you know, with you, you know, having a kid and a wife and now you have a full family to take care of, they need you as well. Yeah. And I think everybody in their own way has, has that situation, whether they're married or have kids or whatever. We all have, we all have families. We all have close friends. We all have our inner circles that yeah. we're trying to protect. And, um, but I, I mean, I'm, I'm with you. I think you said it well. We we want our new normal, and we want to know what it looks like. We just don't know yet. Whew, sorry, we went on a long tangent on that. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard not to talk about it, exactly. though, right? I mean, you, you want to talk about sports broadcasting. But there you is no sports broadcasting right now. Guess what? COVID-19 affects everything. It's yep. not one of those where it's like, okay, we if we get it to this level, this we don't know that. I don't know. Yeah. I'm not even going to try to figure it out. Yeah, because the only thing the only thing I know is when it get back to what it's supposed to be, then and only then will you have an idea of what it's supposed to be. Yeah. Well said. So, how do we? Oh yeah, now I can get back on track with this storylines in preparation. I know we talked about it with the high school, <clears throat> but how much? are you using storylines for what you're working with, with the sounds and the opponent? And can you sometimes get circuitry overloaded when you go into a wormhole and it's like, how did I get here? Yeah, it's a good, it's a good question. And I, it's a, it's a, it's a, um, doing the basketball and football that I've been fortunate enough to do the last few years. I think it's why I always tell people getting into the business, do as many games and as many different sports as you can, because they all make you better. Mm -hmm. I really, I really believe doing the basketball <coughs> and football, um, where it is the sort of the game of the week, whether literally or, or figuratively, you feel like, okay, this is their only game this week. Um, it, it really makes you focus on, why, why that game matters because you know in football they only play a 10 or 12 games basketball they only play 30 or whatever it is baseball the volume of games makes each game in theory um matter less because there's more of them but at the same time it's it has sort of refocused me into making sure that i do tell the listener what the storylines are for that particular game. It's really easy for your brain to say, well, this is game number 20 out of 140. Or game um, 50. Or right, game 50. And especially in the minor leagues where, where the standings 
are only part of the equation when you're at AAA and guys are that close to the big leagues. That sometimes is the storyline. So you're usually mm -hmm. dealing with multiple storylines. You've got, <clears throat> got A, the team is trying to win the game that night. B, the players involved in the game that night are also trying to get to the major leagues. So there's, there's multiple storylines from that component, but the basketball football work I do has sort of made me um, think about it differently and refocus on kind of sharing that storyline, because even though it is only game 20 or game 50 or whatever out of 140, that game right then and there does matter for different reasons. And sometimes it is trying to win that game because they've lost eight in a row, or sometimes it, the storyline is, uh, or you're trying to catch just, a team that's in first place. Right, or or from an individual standpoint, sometimes the storyline is, hey, we've got this new top prospect who just came up from AA. Let's see what he's got. Or the storyline is, hey, the Rangers at 5 o'clock just called up the pitcher we were going to have start tonight. We're yep. bullpen by committee tonight. That's mm -hmm. a storyline. That you know that's, So that may be <clears throat> because that's going to affect – uh, not just that game, but it's going to affect the next game because you're trying to catch up in the bullpen and you're going to, you don't want to run out of arms. And so there's all these different um, storylines, I think, every night that need to be focused on. So that's, that's kind of what comes to mind for me with your question, because I think baseball is unique because of the volume of the games. But I think in some ways, then you have to, it's even more important for the broadcaster to make sure that he or she is identifying the storyline and then following up with that as the game unfolds. And sometimes what the storyline was going in is not what the storyline is coming out because you might, uh, you know, you might uh, have a five game winning streak going in and you think, okay, we're going for the sweep. That's the story. Can the sound sweep, you know, Omaha. But if in the fifth inning, your cleanup hitter comes out of the game because you're seeing on social media that the Rangers had a couple of injuries and you, you're pretty sure your guy's getting caught up to the big leagues. Then mm -hmm. that becomes a storyline and you, you run with that. So you, you have to, you kind of have to be open uh, going into a game of identifying the storylines, but then being ready for them to change. Uh, and I think in the world of AAA baseball, those storylines change more often. And it, it, it also then is, beneficial to me selfishly because there's never a shortage of storylines <laughs> even though there's a lot of games uh there's so much happening over the course of the season because your roster in september is almost nothing like what it was in april those are all individual storylines that need to be told within a broadcast or within a week or over the course of a series so it's it's i guess kind of combining the short term and the long term um, with baseball as far as developing those storylines. When you got the call to the big show when you were an Oakland A's affiliate, I know it was a big throw for you, but what did you feel like you took away from doing the games at the big league level that you brought back to doing your job here? Filling uh, in for the legend, Ken Korak. That's right. Ken's the best man. Ken, I had so much fun that day with him. Um, and it's just, I'm flooded back with memories as you, as you bring it up. I hadn't, I hadn't thought about it for a little while. And now I'm just thinking about how great that day was and how, how thankful I still am that the A's gave me that opportunity. They didn't have to, they didn't have to choose me to be the fill in that day. Um, but to answer the question, I, I took away, uh, part of it was taking away, or sort of redefining um, the storyline element that I just talked about, because at the big league level, especially where the winning is almost 
the only thing, and most times it is the only thing, mm-hmm. um, you have to make sure that you're developing those storylines that day. Here's how the A's are trying to win this game today, right now, in June, against the White Sox. Uh, develop that storyline, develop the matchups, develop the pitcher versus hitter battle, and just kind of focus on that day. So I came away with realizing, like, wow, I just did a couple of games that not only matter to me individually and professionally as, as getting that opportunity, but they matter. I needed to make sure I was relaying to the listeners that day, not my experience, but why that game mattered for their team. They weren't tuning in to hear me. They were tuning in to hear their team. So it, it sort of reemphasized the storyline component. Um, But for me individually, um, you know, that was a, it, 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 that was a, that it, it felt like some validation. Uh, it's hard not to feel like that uh, for the amount of time that I've worked in the minor leagues and how hard I've tried to work to get to the major leagues and how hard it is to get there, how lucky you have to be, how good you have to be. So to even get there for a day, um, you know, I, I felt like it kind of validated a lot of the work that I put in and there is no guarantee that I'll ever get back there or that I'll get there full time. And so it's, it certainly checked off, um, kind of a lifetime box for me to, to have gotten to do it just for a day. Uh, I, it, I was not going to take any of it for granted. I still don't. Um, I can still picture it vividly in my mind. It was just a, a huge, huge thrill. And, um, you know, you, you, you put in the time, you have a goal that you know going in is going to be difficult to achieve. And if you get it for even for a day, I know it sounds cliche, but you, you know, you don't take any, you don't take it, it for granted. For, you you don't, don't take it for granted. And I feel, uh, I feel really proud about the job that I did up there. I really, you know, I had to make sure that even though I was, um, kind of, hang on a second. I had to put this on top. Well, sorry about that. I don't know who that. There we go. Sorry, let me let me let me pick up where I left off before with the the answer um, of. (laughs) <laughs> of that day with the A's. Um, My bad. That's okay. Um, Cause I think it, it plays into what you were going to follow up with. I, yeah. Um, I had to make sure that that, that day um, while in my mind, it was like the greatest day of my life professionally. I had to make sure that uh, the, the, the innings where I was going to be doing the play by play, the third, fourth and seventh innings, mm-hmm. I had to make sure that I, only got energy uh, over energized if the play on the field demanded it. In other words, I had to I had to make sure that I managed the emotion and didn't try to make the top of the third in a scoreless game sound like the bottom of the ninth of the World Series. Even though in my mind for my career it felt <laughs> like that, if that makes sense, I sure. had to make sure that my my energy and my call matched what was happening on the field, which was not easy to do because I was so excited to get those games that I wanted to, you know, you wanted to, you wanted to show that, well, you can't fake that if the action on the field is kind of ordinary. And sure. and most of the innings that I got that day uh, were one, two, three innings. And so, but what I was going to say is I do, I am, pr- so I'm proud of that. I'm proud of the, of the way um, the calls went. I feel like I showed 
that day that um, I can hang up there. I, I, I know that sounds cocky. I mean it to sound confident, though, not cocky, that it, I, I felt like after, at the end of that day, I thought, okay, I, I, could, I could do that again. I feel happy with it. I didn't feel like I was overmatched. Um, I felt ready for it. I'm, I'm proud of how comfortable I felt. I didn't feel that nervous during the, during the actual games. I had nerves, but I didn't feel nervous like it was crippling my call. So I, right. I'm, I'm satisfied that if I never get up there again, ever, um, that you've at least done it I, once. Well, not only did I do it once, but the job that I did, I feel is indicative of the way I call every game or the way I try to approach every game. And so if I need to show somebody that I can do it up there, I feel like those innings that I did are a good replica, uh, a good replica of what I, what I do most day in day out. So I, I'm really, I'm really excited about how it went. Not just that I got to do it, but that I, um, I didn't have any major gaffes. Uh, I didn't um, oversell the action, even though I was really excited to be there. So I'm, I'm proud of of how it went up there. Um, and like I said, whether I get up there again ever or not, um, I, I'm, I'll, I'll take that day, uh, any day I can get it for how it went. So when did you know you were going to get the opportunity or was it just out of the blue? I mean, cause it was out I, of the I don't, I don't know if you were had a chance to, you know, say it on the air or if you or if they just basically said you that, Whoever, like when Pete Weber filled in for you, when Chip Walters, I think, filled in for you for a game. Right. You said you were on assignment. Right. So, like, okay. I, so the timing, um, the timing was both out of the blue a little bit, but also in advance. It was early June. Uh, we had an off day. The sounds had an off day. Mm -hmm. And I was, uh, I was actually at a movie with my wife. <laughs> which is like the only time I've been in a movie theater in like the, the last 10 years. Like we got, we, you know, we, we have young kids. We don't, we, we don't go out just the two of us very often, but we, the sounds had an off day. Uh, our daughter was in school. And so my wife and I went to a movie and in the middle of the movie, I felt my phone vibrating in my pocket and I looked, I grabbed it discreetly and made sure it wasn't going to be super bright in the theater. But I, I, I happened to look at it. And it was the director of broadcasting for the A's. His name is Matt Pearl. He had sent me an email saying, hey, Jeff, do you have a few minutes to talk today? Um, let me know. And, you know, I knew Matt. Matt knew of me. But he was not a guy that we that I had a lot of contact day to day with very often. I mean, it was sort of a one of those guys that maybe in a calendar year you trade emails with a handful of times. Sure. So I thought, okay, this is interesting that he's reaching out. Uh, my mind of course went to maybe he was calling or emailing about uh, a fill in opportunity, but I, I had no guarantee that that's truly what it was. Um, so I, we finished the movie. I go outside and I give him a call and or I think I replied in the, to the email saying, I'll call you back in a little bit. Um, and so I called and he, he mentioned that in a few weeks from that date, they had a need. Uh, Vince Catronio was going to be attending a memorial service that he knew about a few weeks uh, out. And uh, so they knew the date and it was in Chicago. Uh, they knew it'd be an easy one hour flight for me to get there. They knew I was from that area. So I think uh, sentimentally, they knew that that would have some significance for me, but it wasn't like it was the driving factor. I think the biggest factor was just that I was relatively close and, could get there to do the game. So he asked if I'd be interested. I said, of course. 
Um, thank you. And um, so I had a, a few weeks mentally to kind of prepare for it. We didn't, the A's wanted to announce it on social media in a fun way, almost like a player call up. So I had to keep it quiet other than my wife, my parents, uh, and a few of the sound staff members, because uh, I wanted to make sure, like you said, that I was going to get somebody lined up uh, to do the game in Nashville for me. That's what the A's wanted to make sure. They said, well, we know you want to do it here. Make sure you can get somebody for your game. And I said, I don't think that'll be a problem, but I'll work on it. So I knew for a couple of weeks that I had to keep it quiet. And then about, I think, five or six days um, before the actual game date, uh, the A's made the announcement on social media. And that's when I started to get flooded with people who didn't know about it, reaching out and saying congrats and all that. So it was, a, it was out of the blue for Matt to reach out in that sense. Um, but it wasn't like, hey, we need you tomorrow. Can you get on a flight now? There, w- there was some planning behind it. Um, and, and that helped both logistically and probably kind of emotionally. I think that's probably part of the reason I wasn't, in, in hindsight, maybe as nervous uh, as I might otherwise be because I was kind of ready for it. And, even, and you had time. Yeah, I had time. And even as people were reaching out a few days before the game to say congratulations, I was already mentally kind of feeling uh, the anticipation of it for a couple of weeks out. So how much prep did you do and how much did Pete and Chip and a few of the other guys, how much of – you know, the game prep did how much in short, how much of the heavy lifting did you do for them? So they didn't have to do as much before you left out on the plane. Well, yeah, the benefit of the situation was that the sound, what part of what made it easy is this, you know, it was going to be a, it was a Friday uh, that I was doing the games for the A's. Well, the sounds were already home. I think on that Wednesday. And I think they're playing Omaha. Yeah, we were playing, well, we were th- they were playing Round Rock, I yeah. think, but we were coming back from a road trip on like a Tuesday. Uh, we were going to be home, you know, Wednesday through like the Monday or whatever. So there was plenty yeah, of I think time it was on, Wednesday or Monday. Yeah, on the front end. five gamer. Yeah, on the front end and the back end, there was plenty of time um, for me uh, to be ready myself, but also know that, okay, after I'm coming back from Chicago, I don't have to have a bag packed to immediately go right back on the road with the sounds. I've got a couple of days, but also the equipment was already set up for Pete, um, you know, the night before, because I did the Thursday game and flew early the Friday morning. So, um, so that prep was easy that, that Pete didn't have to worry about getting anything set up. He just, he could plug and play uh, to get to the ballpark and the equipment would already be ready for him. So that helped. And then from a prep standpoint, you know, I think the, the biggest reason that I, got the opportunity with the A's as I was doing the games for their triple A team. I mean, you know, 20 of the 25 guys that were playing for the, the A's against the White Sox that they had come through Nashville. Mm-hmm. So that was really comforting to know that the names I was going to see in the lineup up there were names that I already knew. I knew a lot of their background. I knew how they were playing, you know, triple A, even like I was saying earlier, from a prep standpoint and storyline standpoint, your storylines are often dictated by what's happening with the major league team. And so um, Hold on again.
See if I can do this the first time. Oh, the producers are going to have a lot of editing to do on this one. That's all right. Keep them busy. <laughs> all right. What looks the? like we're looks like we're still recording. Oh, I didn't know we were still recording. Sorry. It's okay. No, I was just letting you know so that. It, okay. Um, <sighs> Pick up you where ready? you left off. Sorry. Okay, that's okay. Uh, so, fortunately, a lot of the prep uh, was sort of already done for me on the A's specifically leading up to that day because I follow them every day anyway. That was one of the things that uh, when the A's asked me about filling in, they, they were curious what I do day to day to keep up with them. And that was, you know, that was an easy one to answer because I was, you know, I read all the articles, I follow the team, I, I know their storylines, I know where they're traveling, I know where they're at in their calendar. And so, um, the preparation for that game was aided by that. It was more about, okay, now at least a few days out, I want to, I want to make sure I'm reading up a little bit more specifically on the White Sox and looking ahead, which pitchers of theirs are going to work that day, trying to do the math of that schedule and figure out the matchup so that I could, um, when I got there, and that was even before I knew the game was going to become a doubleheader, uh, to make sure I knew the pitchers that were going to be involved for that game. And then their Thursday game got rained out. Uh, and we had, we had to kind of reconfigure. They, they, they called on the Thursday and said, Hey, we're, we're pretty sure our game, uh, today, meaning that Thursday is going to be rained out. Uh, they may do a day night double header tomorrow, meaning the Friday. And at, at that time I was planning to fly in about, about noontime to do a Friday night game. They said, Hey, uh, this might be a double header. Are you interested in doing both games? And I said, Absolutely. Uh, made a quick call to Southwest, got the flight changed to a very early morning flight. And so I got into Chicago, um, I'll say about, uh, probably landed about eight o'clock, uh, went to the hotel for a little bit, but then it was pretty much right to the ballpark to get ready with Ken for, uh, I want to say it was a 12.05, might've been a 105. Uh, first I think usually they go 110, I think usually. Yeah. So it, um, so there was, it was a flurry. It was uh, a lot of reconfiguring, but I, I always tell people, and it's both a joke and the truth, it's the uh, first doubleheader I've ever been truly excited about. Yeah, except for the fact we had to do minor, minor league doubleheaders, two seven-inning affairs, which is a long day at the yard. Right, that's why I'm saying that the major league doubleheader that I got, if you tell me I can do a doubleheader in the major leagues instead of one game, I'm in. I'll do two instead of one any day <laughs> of the week. What is the change when you're doing – a double header at the minor league level and 14 innings and trying to figure out how you're going to, you know, do the regular broadcast day and then go back to the station and give yourself a couple of minutes to go downstairs, get the lineup. Since you won't have time to talk to anybody, you're just going to have to just do a grab, rip and go. Yeah. It's gone on more than one occasion. It's definitely unique. I the biggest thing, like you said, is the time between games. Now, fortunately, a lot of the doubleheaders, the managers are good enough to say, "Hey, here is my likely lineup for game two. We always still double check it to make sure that nothing in game one is going to dictate the lineup for game two. Guy gets hurt, guy gets ejected, whatever. Yep. Um, but I at least can fill out my book and pencil for game two, and it's a little bit less rushed in between games. But either way, there's not much time. Um, it's weird though. The day, the day is both 
long and short because the, the, <coughs> from a the way you approach the game when you know it's seven instead of nine, even though you know you have another seven coming up, it's a more condensed game um, for the game that you're in. And so all of a sudden the fourth inning, you realize like, well, we're almost, we're almost to the late innings here. So I, I don't think of it some, when I'm in like the third inning of game one, I'm not thinking like, Oh man, I still have another 11 to go. I'm thinking we're only a couple of innings away from like the team's closer coming in and all of a sudden mm -hmm. scoring first becomes more important and your those storylines kind of become more condensed. So it's kind of an odd, an odd feeling. You're thinking like on the one hand, yes, it's one long day, but you're doing two shorter games. So in some senses it feels, it almost feels a little easier each game individually. But if you add them up together, you're right. If you think about it that way, you're realizing you're on the air for like five hours. When you're dealing with that, like when you do the regular 15, 20 minute pregame show, depending on how long, you know, I don't know if that's a combo of working with you in the station on how the broadcast log goes, or if that's something that you and the team put together that you send back to the station or vice versa. Mm -hmm. When you have to do it on the double header, then how does that all like kind of change to make sure that both games get on? Yeah, the, the biggest thing is making sure that because a lot of times if we have a, you know, a Tuesday game gets postponed by rain and the doubleheader is going to be the next night, a lot of times they're going to move up that start time from 7.05 to 5.05. And the biggest thing is right away making sure can the station get a producer, uh, you know, for an earlier time than they had otherwise planned. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, can they reprogram what they need to program from a scheduling standpoint to accommodate for the earlier game? Uh, the time in between games is not uh, all that difficult to manage for me and the station um, because they almost look at it as um, two separate games. You know, we sort of close out game one and then we reopen game two. They don't necessarily play, you know, just 20 minutes of uh, commercials to try to buy time between games. So we sort of look at it as like two different broadcasts. Uh, in one day rather than one long one. And and if you think about it that way from both a sponsor standpoint and from a um, scheduling standpoint, I think it gets a little easier. And when you deal with the regular nine inning affair, usually that's going to go two and a half, three hours, and you may have like five, six or seven different pitching changes depending on what the managers want to do at their discretion. How often are you looking at matchups depending on like this pitcher versus that batter or that batter against that pitcher and so on and so forth? How are you looking at all those? From like a, a statistical standpoint or the way the manager is approaching it, you mean? Kind of both because I know, yeah. you, I know you deal with, you know, the stats and all the stat nerds and the stat packs and, everything else and then yeah dealing with the I think manager lot, and everything else a lot of the fun for me and i've told our managers this all the time it's why i love to talk kind of strategy with them off the air before the <laughs> game or talk to them about the game from the previous night a lot of the fun for me is trying to kind of play along with them and try to tell the listener what i think the manager is thinking and i don't suggest that i know what they're thinking but i can <laughs> you sort of take the 
you, it's kind of like solving a mystery. You take the clues around you and you try to come up with an educated guess. So, um, you know, a, a lot of times I try to think, okay, well, here's why they probably have this pitcher warming up in the bullpen versus another. Now, the big thing at AAA compared to the way the big league bullpens are handled, a lot of times at AAA it's simply who's available and who's not. Uh, they will plan out usually when a, when a reliever at AAA is going to work two games in a row. It's by design, whereas at the major league level, you know, you're going to your, your, your horses, your guys, uh, and those seventh, eighth inning, ninth inning guys, you're going to them two, sometimes three days in a row if you have close games, whereas at the AAA level, it's a little bit more about – it's less about strategy sometimes and, get, and more about making sure the guys get in their work because – they're on three days rest instead of two, or if they're on five days rest, we don't want them to be on six days rest tomorrow. So let's make sure we get them in the game. And usually I know all that in advance of the game because I make sure to talk with the manager every day and I know who he might need to use or who he'd want to use, or I know how shorthanded the team is or not. And so then when the game unfolds, I can usually pretty, pretty well have a sense of why they're, why they're doing what they're doing. But sometimes, you know, in the fifth inning, there are, there, you know, it certainly uh, happens often during a season at AAA where something happens with them in the dugout or with Texas that I don't know about. And um, they do have to go to somebody different late in the game. And I don't always know why they might've done that, but usually you find out later, yeah, you know, the Rangers called and told us not to use Smith because they might have to call him up tomorrow so all of a sudden, you know, the sounds are up one nothing in the eighth inning and their closer is not warming up. Usually I can then surmise, okay, there, there's a reason they're not going to him. And it's either because he's pitched two nights in a row and rarely at AAA do you go three in a row or uh, maybe because he might be getting called up. And I'll say all that on the air. I'll say, I don't know, but here's a possibility. I try to give the listener as much of the information as I do um, without, uh, without, taking away any trust or any private information that I, that I know I can't share. So um, that's, that's a lot of the fun for me is just kind of the strategy and you're right, the matchups, I've got all the numbers. I, uh, the biggest things for me are the left, right splits so that I know, okay, the other team is probably bringing in this left-hander because the batter coming up for the sounds, it's 190 against lefties compared to 380 against righties. So those, that does happen. Um, even if it doesn't happen as often as it might at the big league level, the matchups still, still do get played. And, and those are the really fun nights at AAA when you know, hey, the team is coming out of an off day or they've got an off day the next day. Uh, the bullpen's pretty well rested because the guy the night before went seven innings and they barely had to use the bullpen. And there are those nights over the course of a season where the manager can go for the win, so to speak, uh, in the way he manages the bullpen. Whereas other nights, it's like, I just need this guy to go inning because I don't have anybody else left. And that's your strategy. And it doesn't matter, left, right, uh, switch hit or whatever. That's the guy who's getting that inning out of necessity rather than out of luxury. So it, you see all the different examples over the course of a AAA season. You're dealing with a shorthanded roster when you had 24, sometimes 23. Yep because you're going to deal with that more in the minor leagues. Mm -hmm. How do you as a broadcaster, you know, deal with, okay, they've called up two of your important guys and they may be sending down a pitcher or an outfielder or somebody for, you know, a couple of rehab games because they need to get them, you know, back in game shape, 
you know, coming off yeah, of an injury. I think you just present the info, you present the facts. Like I said, you kind of play along with the manager, you relay to your audience, here's why they're doing this, or here's why they're, th- they're in the situation they're in. Uh, here's what I know about the new guy who just got here at two o'clock today or whatever the case. You just, you know, you, you just kind of present what you know and, and share it and let the game unfold. It's, um, you know, when you, when you call games for a team and you do over a hundred games of theirs every year, even though I would not describe myself as a homer on the air, I'm, I try to be fair I do want the sounds to win as many games as they can. And so of course. It's, hard, it's hard sometimes as the announcer, just like it's hard for the manager. It's hard for whomever when your team all of a sudden loses its cleanup hitter and it's ace pitcher within a 48 hour span, because you know, it's going to be harder for your team to win games, but you clearly know that the bottom line is what the big league team needs and that's what they're going to do. Um, but, but from a, and I'll, I'll even bring this up like in, uh, you know, interviews with our manager, I'll say, Hey, you know, obviously you're happy for so-and-so to get called up, but tell, tell me what this means purely from a sounds standpoint. Uh, To me that phrasing it that way sort of says, uh, yeah, we're, we're of course happy that the guy got to the big leagues, but there's still, but how does it shift? Right. There's still a triple A. Yeah. There's still a triple A game that night. And the manager at triple A knows he's going to be there all year. And his job is that particular night, not to mope about the guy that he doesn't have, it's about to try to win the game with the guys that he does have. And I think phrasing it that way, uh, I, I like to do it that way so that any listeners thinking, well, isn't the goal for the guy to get to the big leagues? Yes, of course. And you're happy for that person. But my, my job is to announce the games for the AAA team. And so my audience is wanting to know how that affects the AAA team. And that's, that's kind of how I approach those situations. Speaking of baseball, I've talked about this with – another broadcaster who also did some minor league baseball for a while. Thoughts on a lot of teams that are no longer going to be owned by MLB teams. Um, I think it was like 40 plus that were no longer going to be <clears throat> or MLB's talking about not owning anymore. What well, you- what there, what there, there have been articles rumored that certain minor league teams around the country uh, may not exist next year. Now that's not, that's not definitive. That's not set yet. Um, It's not that they wouldn't be owned by whomever they're owned by. It's that they, that that they would not exist in their current form. There was uh, so basically major league baseball and minor league baseball have a contract Mm -hmm. and that contract ends after this season. Um, Wow. And apparently, and this is all, uh, nothing is set yet. They're far from any sort of agreement, but uh, there have been some articles that have come out from people saying that MLB sources that are, 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 are threatening to, to contract certain minor league teams. Um, and, and we don't know if that's going to happen. Um, it wouldn't be the sounds either way. That Their sounds are fine. That's not it's mostly uh, rookie ball teams um, that would not exist. But again, I want to be very clear that that that's none of that is set yet. That's just some of what has come out or been discussed in potential negotiations. Major League Baseball, it appears, wants to decrease the number of teams, um, among other things, but mostly because the teams that they would suggest not exist anymore have facilities that MLB is not satisfied with. That's their, that's their contention from what I'm gathering. But again, that's, 
A lot of what I've read is involving lower level teams and, um, but we just don't know that, that they, that MILB next year could look exactly the same as it looks right now or this year, or it could look dramatically different. Um, we, it's all, it's all still to be negotiated. So anything that you're referencing there is far from set. And it's not that they, uh, cause it, it's just the ML, MLB teams only own, um, they're not, they don't own all the minor league teams. A lot of minor league teams are owned by separate ownership groups, not the MLB club themselves. And regardless of who owns it, uh, it's from MLB standpoint, it seems that they're more focused on the facilities of certain teams at the lower levels and making sure that if those are going to exist, that the facility gets upgraded to the standards that MLB wants. Yeah. Cause I was wondering like, if it's the facilities, the ownership groups don't, isn't it? Don't you think it's on them to, you know, fix those? To where right, and that's why I was saying not, you know, like the sounds are not owned by the Texas Rangers. That's one of the things that, um, you know, part of I, I feel like part of my role with the broadcasting is just try to help educate fans because there are a lot of intricacies of minor league baseball, and one of them is that people uh, who aren't uh, in the the weeds of how professional baseball works, they don't realize that, that most minor league baseball teams are not owned by their parent club. Mm-hmm. Uh, like when we switched from the A's to the Rangers, some people would reach out on social media thinking that I was going to go to Las Vegas because that was the A's new AAA team. And I had to explain, no, I'm employed by the sounds. We are separately owned. Um, I'm not leaving. I'm just now calling games for the Rangers AAA team instead of Oakland. So um, to your point, uh, you know, ML, the ML, various MLB teams, some of them do own a minor league affiliate or two. The Rangers own a couple of theirs. So, yeah, in that sense, you're right. They have control over that team's facility. Uh, but from a sound standpoint, for example, we're not owned by the Rangers. We're owned separately. And, and a lot of minor league teams are in that group. And that's why MLB is trying to say, well, hey, you know, team A, wherever you are, uh, that we're unhappy with, here's what we want you to do. But that all has to be contractually negotiated, and it's just mm-hmm. far too early to know what that's going to look like next year. Yeah, I wasn't sure if they had, you know, discussed that because I saw a lot of stuff from <clears throat> the baseball writers about, you know, going for more spring training at their spring training facilities and then trying to figure out how many games they're going to allow the teams to do at home and away to play this as much of the schedule as they possibly can. Right. And that's kind of a different conversation. That's more about managing the coronavirus in 2020 rather than the uh, it's called the PBA, the professional baseball agreement. That's more coronavirus based than the the PBA negotiations between MLB and MILB, where they're trying to figure out what that looks like for next year. Sometimes they play, sometimes they're connected uh, because of, what the coronavirus is sort of demanding out of these teams trying to reconfigure and figure out what they can do. But from an, from the question you brought up about, about ownerships and minor league teams yeah. going away and all that, that's more about 2021 and um, the sounds would not have a- any effect uh, on that as far as ownership goes or, or, or existence. We're, we're not. Yeah, Cause anywhere. I had wondered about that because I, you know, I had seen a lot from social media and things like that, especially Twitter. 
Right, and, and that's you, get a, you, know, you get a lot of stuff from there. Sometimes, you know, well, and and because they're ongoing negotiations, like anything else, certain things leak out, and then you don't know what's true, what's not true. I'm not directly involved in any of these negotiations. I just know <laughs> that the sounds aren't going anywhere, and no AAA team is in in jeopardy of of getting wiped off the map. Um, I I think I saw something where maybe the Jackson General maybe. But I don't know if that's going to be a possibility because from whatever they've got one of the best ballparks in, in baseball. Well, they're and they're but again they're a double A and I don't have I, I don't have any knowledge of what's happening with the Southern League. I, all I know is what how it relates to the sounds and like I said, it's they're ongoing discussions with MLB and MILB. I'm not part of them. I'm reading some of the same articles as you are, and mm-hmm. some of it seems far-fetched some of it seems feasible and anywhere in between but to say that to say that teams are getting contracted for next year we we don't know that that's true so when you made it when the transition was from Oakland to Texas how much changed I mean I know you're an American League affiliate but how much do you feel like going from one parent club to go to another. How do you feel like that changes from the broadcasting standpoint for you? Probably not much, but from the broadcast standpoint, from the broadcast standpoint, it was mainly just getting to know a new crop of players. Um, you know, some of them we had seen come through the league because the Rangers previous AAA team being in round rock was either in our division and or on the same side of our league and we would see them 16 times every year. So there was already some familiarity with their system and uh, kind of where they were organizationally and with their player development. Um, but the biggest thing was just knowing that we were going to have uh, a brand new, a brand new team, because like I said before, uh, being with Oakland, we weren't owned by the A's. We had a contract with the A's and then we switched and now have a contract with the Rangers. And so our, our players are employed by the Rangers, whereas I'm employed by the Sounds. And there was just a kind of a getting to know you period um, of what the team was going to look like. But, you know, at AAA baseball, especially every year, regardless of who your parent club is, that particular parent club is bringing in new guys to their organization anyway. They're signing minor league free agents. So, um, you know, going into any season, there are going to be brand new guys to – your team, uh, whether they're coming up from the Rangers and they're getting to AAA for the first time, or the Rangers go out and sign a guy who spent the last five years with the Cubs or whomever. So, you know, there's a lot of preparation that goes into every season anyway, just to get to know those particular players and their background. And then as those first few weeks of the season unfold, you're kind of getting to know them off the field a little bit and, and getting comfortable with each other and doing interviews and all that. So, um, it wasn't dramatically different, and like I said, I think a lot of it um, was helped by the fact that I was seeing a Rangers AAA team quite a bit over the last several years anyway because we would see Round Rock so often. What's it like dealing with the other broadcasters around the league when you get a chance to you know, travel to them or they come to you? It's great. It's great. I'm, I've become close friends with a lot of them and you, you know, you spend a lot of time with each other and they're the greatest resource typically to get information about, you know, the sounds opponent. Uh, if Omaha comes in, 
the best detail I can get about how they've been playing or what their situation is or what their pitcher that night throws is, Mark is from, yeah, Mark and my friend and colleague, Mark Nasser. So or the, or, or um, uh, who's the other guy that works with him? Uh, Dan, um, Bar- Donnie Barnes. Right. Number two. Yeah, the yeah. other, the other broadcaster is, is invaluable. And I try to be the same way for them. Um, they don't need every detail about every sound, but they want kind of the bullet points of what's going on with us. And so, in addition to just your friendship and asking them how your family, how their family's doing and how their front office is doing and looking around their ballpark to see what's new, you're, you're preparing for the game that night and getting the information from them. Or you maybe have a, a player on their team uh, that you want to talk to or interview and you ask him what's he like or, you know, that kind of stuff. So um, those relationships are, are great in a lot of different ways. How long have you done broadcast solo? Because I know, what was it, a couple of years ago you had Kevin Jarvis with you. And what was it like working with him on the home game broadcast? And are, I love you, are you ever going to yeah. get that again? I, I loved working with Kevin. Um, you know, most of, the, most of the time in the minor leagues, uh, you're, you're solo. Uh, I've always been solo on the road. Those first few years in the new park, I was fortunate to have Kevin. But even then, I didn't have Kevin for all 70 games. It was right. maybe 20 games or so uh, per season. Um, I felt like the, I feel like the broadcast is, is a different and in some ways better when you've got that perspective. Not, it, it wasn't just that I had a second person. It was that I had a second person as knowledgeable about the game as Kevin. He, he's a former player. He's been a scout for a long time. He knows the ins and outs of the game. He's a true analyst, not a second play-by-play guy. So his information was going to be from a different lens than what I call the game through. And I think that made for a great broadcast. So, uh, but you're right. I've been uh, most of the time solo uh, in the places that I've been. And that's just kind of par for the course at the minor league level. So um, I'm used to it. Uh, I, I feel like I can handle it. Baseball on radio is uh, one sport where you can be solo and and still fulfill what the listener, I think, needs you to fulfill. Um, it'd be different if it were on television or a different sport. They're all different in kind of the dynamic and how much time there is or not between plays or pitches or snaps or what have you. So I, I think while it's great to have somebody, if you can get somebody for baseball and that situation is is common at the major league level, uh, doing it solo is fairly common at the minor league level, and I think is is uh, still a good way to bring the game to the listener. When you work with an analyst, how much do you feel like when the analyst says something and it leaves you while still doing in-game broadcast mode, where you feel like you can go different places because the analyst is, you know said something that has brought something to the mind of, oh, okay we can go here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, and I think a lot of that is just uh, natural depending on how the game unfolds. You know, Kevin and I didn't necessarily go into every game saying, okay, we want to make sure we talk about A, B, and C tonight. His, his knowledge and his uh, benefit to the broadcast uh, was also the fact that if, as a game unfolds, he could tell you, here's why, I think this is happening or here's what happened with that at bat or here's why I think that pitcher threw that pitch at that particular time. And a lot of that you're not going to know until it actually happens in the game. And then you're, you're reacting to what you saw 
rather than um, just kind of bringing a topic up out of the blue. And, you know, some of that is dependent on whether it's a, a one nothing game in the eighth inning or a 10 to two game in the eighth inning. And you can kind of go down different roads and, um, and go back and forth off of each other, depending on what ha what's happening on the field. So what are you looking for? Well, what are your basic mandatories besides roster of the basics? What things are you looking for game prep wise that are must haves before a game gets underway or before you start your broadcast? Um, I think it's, yeah, you're right. You have to have the basics uh, statistically and you need the roster that's got the height and weight and the age and all that kind of thing. Um, but for me, it's also like what I mentioned earlier, you read through the game notes and the stat packs, you want to make sure um, the numbers that you're giving serve a purpose for you. And, and you're not just rattling them off because you think you should or because that's what you do when the first, when the guy comes to the plate in the first inning. Um, I don't necessarily in the bottom of the first for each of the sounds, first three hitters just automatically give batting average homers, RBIs on base percentage, whatever it is. Um, I might instead say something like he's uh, he's got a 10 game hitting streak and it has risen his average overall to 320 instead of just saying 320, 10 home runs, 52 RBIs. I kind of want to give you why or how it's gotten to 320. Is that down from 350 over the last three weeks? Is it up like over the last two weeks? Um, that's kind of how I approach the numbers. And so anything I write down in my book that comes out of the game notes, it's because I think it's, it's relevant, especially for the opposing team. Um, you know, if it's the opener of a four-game series, I want to know who are the three or four guys for Iowa – who are hot or who are not, or um, the other thing I is especially important. I think at AAA is um, giving how many games they've played because it's one thing to hit 380 in 20 games at AAA. It's entirely different to hit 380 in 105 games. And because the rosters change so much, you know, in the middle of J July, the sounds might be playing their 100th game of the year, but for the guy who just came up from double A, it's his eighth. And so I want to mm -hmm. make sure the listener knows that the guy's new to the team. Uh, the numbers are not necessarily a large enough sample size to put much stock in them. So I might instead go on the fact that this guy's, you know, four for nine in the series with five RBIs. And that's more important than whatever the batting average is because he hasn't played in a ton of games to really give me an idea of what the, if that batting average is indicative of how he's playing. So it's a matter of looking at the numbers, but then also kind of giving some context behind them before giving them out so that I'm giving the listener what I think is going to give the best representation of the type of season that guy's having or the game or the, or the week or the month or whatever it is to kind of reference here's why this guy matters or here's why he's been struggling. How often do you go back and look at the other numbers that either a pitcher or a player that just got called up, do you refer back to the numbers and then once they get like a pretty good sample at AAA, you stay with the AAA numbers instead of the AA and single A numbers or yeah, that's a good if you have a player that's, you know, that's going to have to come in and spot start, he gets the call for one game. And let's say 
he goes three, but he knows he's going back to his team, but the AAA team needed a fresh warmed up arm that could be pitching for that particular game as a spot start, not as a natural start, but as maybe like a three or four inning start. Right. Instead of the regular guy. Yeah, I think there, there's definitely some, some gray area. I think sample size is always an important factor in, in baseball. To so the first part about like a guy who's up from AA, when do you stop bringing up the AA numbers? Um, still no concrete answer. But I think after, after a week or two, uh, you, you lean a little bit more on how it's going at AAA and you're, you're discussing more of the adjustment from AA to AAA and because I've seen a lot of guys over the years who hit like 360 at double A and then for their first month at triple A, they're hitting a buck 80 because of the adjustment from level to level. Now certainly mm-hmm. some guys, some guys, stay, different. yeah, some guys stay different. hot, some guys stay hot and then you go with that. But I think you, so there, it just kind of depends on how the guy is doing and, and how that helps you, like I said before, give some context to his performance. If a guy is hitting 350 at triple A and he hits similar to that at double A, I'm going to keep bringing up the double A numbers because it further extends my point to the listener about how well the guy's been playing. Or if a guy spends half the season at double A and half the season at triple A, late in the year, I want to go back at least periodically and kind of keep an eye on those double A numbers because maybe he's got nine homers at triple A, but his home run that night was his 25th on the year. And then, you know, when you start combining double A AA and triple A numbers, two pretty difficult levels of baseball. If by the end of the year, guys had 25 homers, I don't care if 16 or a double A AA and nine or a triple A 25 is a pretty good number. So you don't exactly. want to, to, you don't want to totally ignore the double A numbers. And then again, I think, you know, why 25? Well, because 25, you know, we, it's a decent, it's a decent number, right? I mean, if you've you follow- got, you've got 25 and 80 and if it's a two different levels, Right. And I think the baseball fan in us, if you follow the game long enough, you, you know, we get to these numbers where, you know, like, Oh, 380, that's a pretty good average or yeah, yeah. 100, 100 RBIs or 10 home run, whatever. We all sort of have like these, these unofficial kind of mental milestones that we know of from following the game to sort of say, yeah, that's a significant number. Sure. So if a guy's got 25 homers or he's looking for his 30th stolen base or whatever the number is, uh, I want to make sure I'm I'm kind of keeping an eye on what the composite is, not just the numbers he's got with my team. What was the year like when the Sounds won the division, made the postseason for the first time in quite a while? Because I know they had not made it. Because I know I think you came on board in 2012 when the Sounds had not made the postseason in quite a while. But then when they got back to the postseason as division champs, yeah. Because I don't know how many times you've actually done playoff baseball, but what was the difference from the last time you did playoff baseball to when you actually got up and did the best of five set when the Sounds made it to the PCL divisional round? It was fun. I think it was fun because you're right. It was the it was at that time the first and still the only time that they've made the playoffs that I've been with the team. But I think part of what made it fun was that the players were into it. Uh, at AAA, it's just difficult. Uh, if you tell a guy, you know, in April, hey, your team's going to make the playoffs, the broadcaster and the guys around the team are going to think, okay, what does our team look like? Uh, so you got a in- dog. Yeah, we do. She's making herself known on this podcast. Uh, you you, you want to know, okay, how is how important is it to the players? 
Um, how many of those players from April and May are still going to be with the team in August? And that particular team in 16 was they were young. Loaded. It was loaded, but it was young, and it was guys that were the A's were not just uh, giving you um, cliches and throwing lines at you, but they truly believed that those guys were going to be part of their core eventually in Oakland for a long time. Now they have proven to be very right with Matt Chapman and Matt Chapman and, and Chad Pinder and yeah. some of those guys. So, um, and a few of the other guys who did get to the big leagues with Oakland are now doing well with other teams like Joey Wendell and Renato Nunez. So mm-hmm. I said, I wasn't just, Hey, our team is, is doing well. Um, we might make the playoffs. It was, Hey, I, I think this team is doing well. And a lot of these guys who are helping the team get to the playoffs will probably still be here when the playoffs come. Uh, it's kind of disheartening uh, at times for triple A teams to make the playoffs. And then you have basically that organization's double A team trying to win a triple A title. Nothing, yep. nothing against those double A guys. It's just, it's just a different mentality when the guys who kind of got you there are also the ones playing it out um, in the postseason. But again, at the end of the day, the goal of AAA for the players is to get to the big league. So you know that's going to happen, and it, it, but it affects kind of how excited you might be to be in the postseason. Because I've seen every example of it. From, I've, seen, I've seen loaded teams get there and keep that team together and keep winning. Uh, I've, team, I've seen teams, uh, you know, they've got a 20-game lead in their division in late August. You know they're going to make the playoffs, but half the team's already gone. And you're thinking, well, yeah, they got the best record in the league, but they've got no but shot. Most of the players are not there. Yeah. So, you know, <laughs> so how excited you might be about a playoff team really is dictated by kind of what you think your team's chances are uh, and how excited the players are. Because, like I said, they want to get to the big leagues. And so some guys are like, oh, cool, we're in first place. Uh, am I getting called up? Other guys are, are also, of course, wanting to get called up. They're not going to turn that down, but they're sure. genuinely excited about. Uh, hey, I'm going to have a chance to make the playoffs. Yeah, and what was cool about that group of Olsen and Pinder and Chapman and all that, mm-hmm. um, they had done that together at low A, high A, and double A. Yep. So to my point about them being excited, they were sort of like, yeah, this is what we do. And it made uh, it made it that much more enjoyable for guys like me who had not been with them at low A, high A, double A, but observing how good they were at triple A, it, it helped fuel my excitement because they were into it and they were expecting it and, and they were largely going to be kept together in our playoffs. And then after we got beat, uh, the A's did call up a few of those guys and, mm-hmm. um, and that was great too. How do you tell – from the minor leagues, the organizations that have it together and organizations that are still either A, trying to find their way, or they'll never find it from your standpoint. From the from the player's standpoint? I mean, I, I mean player's standpoint, I mean, I don't know, because I don't know how often you deal with a lot of, besides the sounds, like all the other teams, like, from besides the sounds, like how many from the other teams, how can you tell those that are good and those that are kind of wanting to get good but are not there yet? I, I guess I'm not sure what what angle you're coming from on the on on maybe maybe from a player standpoint, maybe like can can 
a fan or a broadcaster tell if the team from a player standpoint is going to look or be successful when they leave triple a sometimes yeah i think um i think that's part of the fun of the job is seeing the different examples i saw it i guess more it, it was a little you get more surprises like when i was at single a in kane county because the guys even when they leave you are still so far from the big leagues but at triple right. a it's really um exciting to see a guy kind of come out of nowhere and get a big league opportunity <laughs> Other guys who are so highly touted coming up, they get to AAA and they struggle. Um, and, and so you see every example of what a guy, you know, is quote unquote supposed to do or what he's not supposed to do. Uh, and these guys have a way of playing themselves into opportunities at the big league level. And they, and they kind of settle it on the field and the team might have them <clears throat> thought of in one way and the guy can't do it or he does it better than they thought. And all of a sudden, you know, he, he's got a totally different role. Um, you know, I think of a guy uh, like Mike Fires, who's with Oakland now and has been with a few different big league teams. When he came through Nashville, he was a prospect. He was not mm-hmm. the top prospect in baseball, but he also, um, he was not a high draft choice either. And he, from improvement and development and persistence, uh, has become a really good major league pitcher. Yeah, yeah. And he's the anchor of a starting rotation. And I'm not saying I'd never thought he could do that. Um, but I also, uh, I, I, it was just, it's interesting to watch that play out. Uh, he, he was not expected necessarily uh, from the, the pundits or the rankings or whatever prospect book you read was not expected to be a, a, as, as good of a major league pitcher as he's been. And it just goes to show you that those are only projections and guesses. And, um, you know, the scouts uh, play such an important role in the game, but at the same time, they still don't know necessarily, there are no guarantees in the game and it all gets settled on the field. Um, And I can think of guys when I was in single a who were very highly touted prospects who never either, either never got to the big leagues or never came close to being the everyday big leaguer that they people thought they were going to become. And so it's just, I, it's part of the, part of the fun I think of following the game is, is the surprises, especially the ones where you're like, wow, I, I wouldn't have guessed that he'd have that career uh, as long as he did, but good for him. And I think that that happens a lot at, at AAA, the bigger, the bigger example of AAA is not, is he going to get to the major leagues? There's so many guys at AAA do it's more, how long is he going to get there? Is he going to get enough of an opportunity to really show what he can do um, by the time guys get to triple a they've been they've been so weeded out from single a and double a that um, while there's still no guarantee they're going to get to the big leagues the odds are in, much more in their favor than they were when they when they first got drafted so how much I, of those I, scouting like when you talk about those you know scouting perspectives and all those baseball magazines and things like that how much of those do you have to stay current on and how much do you not use out of all that for a broadcast? I use it. I use it quite a bit. Not, not from the standpoint of, Hey, he's the number seven prospect. Uh, although I'd sometimes will give that on the year. Yeah. Cause I was always wondering that. Because... It, it's more for me. I read those more for the content of what they write up about the player. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because within that, it's not just, okay, is he number five or is he number 22? <coughs> uh, it's to me, it's the write-up that sometimes it'll say, you know, he, he, had, he they'll describe his previous season and it'll say something like, you know, he, he made a drastic improvement at double a, um, after not throwing his slider anymore, or he, he developed his curveball a lot more. And that's why, uh, you know, this organization feels like he took off last year. That's the kind of stuff I want. While I will note what the number is that they assign a guy or, oh, you know, he's the number nine prospect in minor league baseball or MILB or MLB.com says he's the, the 13th best prospect in the Cardinal system. Sometimes that just kind of runs together and you're, you're expecting anybody at AAA to be rated highly uh, sure. in some sense. I use, I use those publications more for the content uh, or they might give you a, a unique tidbit about, uh, you know, the guy was, a, was, a, was not even a pitcher in college. He was a catcher and now he's a pitcher. And that's the kind of stuff that I find interesting. And I want to make sure I give on the air. It's not just, because sometimes the rankings just become another stat that you're giving out. He's hitting 220, 10 home runs, 32 RBIs, number eight prospect. And it all just kind of runs together. But if you give the context of he had a, he had a 1.40 ERA at double A. Uh, and according to baseball America, he didn't throw his curveball nearly as much last year as he had in the past. That gives you more information than me just telling you he's the number eight prospect. How fun was it to do Vandy baseball this year before everything got shut down when you did the St. when you did the um, midweek game against St. Louis and how was the yeah, transition? I, even though, even though you done triple A for a while, I don't know if that was your first college game or, you know, I've done a couple, I filled college. in, I filled in at MTSU a few years ago um, when they were in overlap with basketball, but I haven't done a ton of college baseball. You're right. I, and I enjoyed um, doing the Vanderbilt game. I, 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 of course, follow them from afar and know of their success, but mm-hmm. to call one of their games and see some of their players play in person was a lot of fun. And it's, um, you know, like anything, it, it, yeah, it's the same sport, but you're all, there are also intricacies for college baseball that you don't see uh, in minor league baseball or professional baseball or AAA. So it was fun to just do a different – it kind of felt like doing a different sport. In yeah, some I was going to ask you about that, like, because – Yeah, I, I mean, they handle, like... you know, they handle the rotations are different, and the, mm-hmm. and – you know, I knew I was I was doing a midweek game, and the lineup is probably going to be different than it is for a Friday night game. And I had to make sure I talked to you know, the media relations staff and and Coach Corbin before the game to make sure I knew why they were approaching that particular game uh, the way that they were. It kind of goes back to what we talked about with storylines and mm-hmm. uh, sort of separating that game within the series, and then that series within where you're at in the schedule and. So it was fun. You know, it was, it was, like I said, a lot of it was kind of the same preparation that I would normally do, but then other parts of it felt, uh, felt very different. Yeah. Cause I was going to ask you like at the college level for you, when you said you did a couple of middle Tennessee baseball games and that was your first Vandy game against St. Louis. What were the different things you felt like you had to do prep wise or was there much, prep that you had to change even though you were doing college instead of yeah I think it's I think it's kind of like what I talked about doing those A's games because um yeah it's sort of like you have you have to know your audience I think and 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 you know even though I was new to them 
um, they knew to the team, most likely. Most of the people tuning into that game are Vanderbilt fans who follow the team at least somewhat closely. So I had to make sure that even though I was reading up on a certain player for the very first time or reading more about them for the very first time, mm-hmm. I didn't want to give their entire bio uh, <laughs> in the first at-bat because to the people who follow Vanderbilt, Closely, they already know it. They, they already know that. So it's a little, you have, you have to, you know, you kind of have to wrap your mind around your perspective, your audience's perspective, the team's perspective, and make sure that you're all kind of meeting in the middle, uh, so to speak. And so I had to do a lot of reading about the team and particular pitchers because a lot of it was new to me. But then I had to make sure, okay, I don't need to say necessarily for every batter, um, you know, that what he did for Vanderbilt in the postseason the previous year, whatever, you know, whatever example you want to give. Um, But at the same time, I didn't want to ignore some of that. I didn't want to ignore, okay, this guy's a sophomore or he was all SEC last year, whatever. You know, I had to kind of pick and choose what might be new to somebody and what wasn't, even though a lot of it was going to be new to me. That makes sense. Oh, sure. I mean, and of course, since I saw on your Twitter bio, I, I and I don't remember if I've seen this, but you are a Seattle Seahawks football fan, and you enjoy the National Football League. I enjoy the you, NFL. I don't know where the Seahawks. The Seahawks is not part of my Twitter bio. I got ah. I got I got to correct you there. I'm an Illinois native and okay. a long-suffering Bears. Bears fan. So what do you? So what are your thoughts on the Bears not picking up the option for Mitchell Trubisky, and do you feel like? the bears are going in a new direction and go find another quarterback. Oh man. We're we're sh- we're sh- I like, we're shifting gears now. You're, we're, you're done with broadcasting and we're onto the bears. I see. All right. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I, I, I'm not going to profess to be uh, an NFL insider. I was not surprised uh, with how the bears operated at the quarterback situation. I, I wasn't they're either. Doing, they're doing ex- exactly what I expected them to do. They'd bring in, somebody of relative accomplishment, but they were not going to, I never thought they were going to get a Brady or a Rivers right. uh, or one of the other uh, higher tier, I guess, if you want to say uh, available quarterbacks. The elite of the elite. Yeah. I think Nick Foles <laughs> is very good. I think he can handle it if, if Trubisky can't, and there's certainly evidence that maybe Trubisky can't, but there's no obvious uh, number one quarterback for them right now, in my opinion. And now, back to coaches. Managers, coaches, all the coaches and managers you've dealt with over the years, what do you feel like, who have been your favorites, and what have all the managers and coaches you've dealt with brought to you as a broadcaster that you've actually been able to use? Oh, man. So I I, I learned from all of them. I really do. I'm not just saying I'm not I'm not dodging the question. I just I think as the broadcaster, it's so important for us as the broadcaster to know our our role and, and to stay in our lane and to understand that while we might know the game really well, we don't know everything that they know, especially in the moment. It's so right. easy to be like, well, why would they throw that pass with a minute left in the fourth quarter? Well, they have their reasons. Now, later, you know, they, they may have still made a mistake in how they executed it, but they probably have a very good reason why 
They mm-hmm. did that. And I'm not saying we can't second guess or that, that these guys are infallible. But there's a way but, to second guess without being a jerk about it and not correct. There's a way to do your it. rep. Yeah, there's a way to do it very fairly. I, I do not take cheap shots on the air. Um, I'm not afraid to say something like, you know, that decision surprised me. Um, I'm sure they had their reasons. Maybe we'll find, well, I'm sure we'll find out more after the game, or uh, I'm looking forward to asking so-and-so after the game about Mm -hmm. that moment in the game. I just don't like the guys who have their mind made up and they're not wrong. The coach is terrible and they're smarter than the guys upstairs or down in the field. I just, I, I, the game, all these games are so hard to play and, and, we get the replays. We get the, the second guessing. They're in the moment with yep. you know, 10 seconds left on the play clock or whatever the example is, and they've got to make a much more imminent decision. And, and again, I'm not saying they're, they're not making mistakes or that they're, uh, they're not, uh, that they're, uh, that they're not in, infallible, but I just think we as the broadcasters um, need to make sure we remind ourselves of our role and what we know relative to what they know in the moment. Um, but I, I learned so much from all the different coaches. I really, I love those conversations. I always tell our managers going into a season, if they're new at, at the sounds, I'll just say, Hey, I love to talk the game. Um, please know that if I ever come in and ask you a question, I'm not second guessing you. I just like to know, I like to learn. I like to, uh, oh, definitely. you know, you, you, that's how we as the broadcaster gets, get better. And that's how, as, like I said earlier, I play along with the manager as the game mm-hmm. unfolds, the more questions that you're asking, the better your ability to do that. And just to have informed opinions instead of just opinions. So um, I just appreciate that. I've been very lucky to work with good people and, and who enjoy, um, you know, conversation, whether it's on the air or off and they love talking about the game with me or with broadcasters or with anybody where you learn a lot. And, and um, I just think that's, that's part of the fun is those relationships. Yeah. I definitely enjoy when, when I was able to sit in the press box, just listen to the opponent, the broadcast teams, like when Chuck was there, when I got a chance to visit the play by boys at Round Rock and Salt Lake and just those guys holding court talking about stuff. I mean, those are the best conversations, the ones you never get on air. Right. And they form that foundation of what you do say on the air, whether literally or, or, you know, directly or indirectly, that's, that's where you're, you're always sort of preparing that, that all factors in whether you know it or not, or whether it's direct or not. Um, and that's, that's how we get better um, listening to other people and not going into a game thinking that we, we know exactly how it's going to go or that, um, you know, a good example is if a guy goes 0 for 5, mm-hmm. I'm going I'm to say he went 0 for 5, and I'm going to say he's struggling. But I, I, don't, I don't like the announcers who then have to take the next step unnecessarily to say he's bad or he, he can't hit or he's go just guessing. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> you know, these guys, especially at AAA. These I mean, I can the, understand if he says he's gone 0 for 5 and, you know, he's getting, you know, getting, you know, cut up with the curveball or – you know, he's missing on the slider. There may be a reason why he's missing on the slider because maybe he's not seen a pitch with some late movement or a pitch with some, you know, late tilt up. Yeah. I, I just, and there's so many ways to do it and to be fair and respectful of how hard it is for them to play that game or to coach that game and just present 
present the facts, let the listener kind of decide. And um, I look at it as I never want to say anything on the air that I wouldn't want to defend myself for to that player or coach off the air later if he or she found out what I said about them. And so if, you know, a guy comes up and, hey, I heard you said I was one for 10 from the field, I could say, yeah, I, I did say that. Um, yeah. And that's all I said. But it's accurate. And, that, and the player, right. And the player would have to say, okay, that's, that's fair. Um, they're never going to hear me say anything. He's one for I, 10. He's terrible. He can't hit. He can't, you know, he can't, you know, he's taking his missed at bats into the field defensively. He, I mean, he may be thinking about that last at bat. Maybe right. he made the error mm-hmm. because he's still thinking about that breaking ball or the slider or the changeup or the fastball yeah. that he got blown away by. He may still it's have that, same. but that still doesn't give us as broadcasters the right to just say that he sucks because maybe he doesn't suck. Maybe it's just the fact that he's still trying to make the adjustment. Well, it's just a credibility thing, too. It's the same way that if a guy goes five for five, I'm going to say he had a great game, he's hot, but I'm not going to say that this means he's going to become an MLB all-star. I don't know that. I'm going to give you what I think and what I think is fair and present the facts, and maybe uh, you can – you can turn it more in a way of, I think the Ranger, this is why the Rangers are really high on this guy rather than saying, uh, well, obviously this guy is going to be a cornerstone for Texas for years to come. He could get traded the next day. I'm, I'm only going to give you exactly. what, what I know and what I believe. And, and if, I, if you live by that as the broadcaster, whether the player is having a good game or a bad game, you're, you're, you're going to sleep well at night and you'll have no problem talking to that individual later about what you might have said on the air. What are you listening for in a broadcast? What are your, when you're listening, what are your do's and don'ts for either for young broadcasters or even broadcasters that are, you know, in the business of broadcasting? It doesn't have to be baseball, but what are your do's and don'ts and what are you listening for and to? And I know I've taken up way more than enough, more time than I probably should have, but thank you. I think, um, I think, uh, you know, I'm listening for obviously the, the basics, time and score, inning, quarter, time left on the clock, all that kind of <clears> stuff. <throat> I think the biggest thing um, with radio play-by-play, regardless of sport, at the end of the day is still the old standby of paint the picture. Give mm-hmm. them what they need to make them feel like they're there. Um, tell them what matters, why it matters, and describe, describe, describe. I think it's really easy to get comfortable and end up giving a listener more of a TV-style call than radio. I think with baseball, it's important to not get not get lazy and just say, and there's ball too. I think the better way to call baseball is to get out in front of it uh, and say, you know, <coughs> not necessarily every single pitch, you've got things you have to say in between pitches, but as a general rule, instead of being passive about the call of and there's ball two, uh, get on the other side of it and say, you know, Smith coming back with the one zero and it's inside and there's ball two. Uh, almost more active uh, word usage than than past tense. I think if we I think it brings the call to life more for the listener. And I like to use the players names as much as possible instead of just saying he takes inside. Uh, you know, Smith takes inside or Smith backed off the plate. Uh, and I think the really great announcers uh, on radio 
do that really well. They also, in baseball especially, it's really easy to only think about the pitcher and the hitter. But as you know, there are other guys on the field, and they Base matter runner. too. And I think the great announcers um, bring those guys into the fold a little bit more, and they remind the listener, you outfield playing the pull or the center Base runner at first. So, yeah, center fielder now with two strikes, moving over a little bit more toward the alley or, you know, whatever, you know, remind me of the wind and the weather and all that. Uh, and then not just what's the batter doing, but is he, does he have an open stance? Is he crouching? Is he standing tall? I think all that goes in to the descriptions, and I think it applies to, to basketball and football too. I think Kevin Harlan is so masterful in football on radio for Westwood One because he doesn't just tell you, Brady takes the snap. Uh, before the snap, he tells you where the wide receivers are. He tells you how many down linemen there are for the defense. The towel flap, the towel flapping in the breeze. Well, yeah. is a, a shotgun they, staggered stance. Yep. Yep. For are the they, snap. Are, yep. Are they showing blitz? Uh, are they backing off? Are they in press coverage? I mean, all that stuff. In basketball, uh, the, the offense would score every time if there were no defense. And I think in basketball play-by-play, play, it's easy to not – to get away from saying, you know, Johnson's all over him in the man-to-man defense. Remind the listener of the defense. So, you know, that's that's. I know we're getting in the weeds there, but that's those are those are the kind of the next level things that I'm I'm not saying I'm an expert at. I'm just mindful of making sure I'm doing that as much as I can, regardless of sport, to uh, to bring it to life for the listener as much as possible. How do you keep yourself mentally sharp from? doing TV games when you have to rotate, when you have to go back to radio to do baseball. If you, if it's like the baseball basketball overlap, how do you keep yourself from getting caught on the mental trap of, okay, I'm doing a basketball game on Friday. I'm doing a baseball game Saturday afternoon or yeah, vice versa. I, I don't get a ton of overlap, but I think it's, I think a lot of that comes with time. Um, I, I don't necessarily bounce from one sport to the other a ton, but I will sometimes have TV basketball on a Thursday and radio <coughs> basketball on a Friday. And you just kind of remind yourself uh, directly and indirectly of what medium <laughs> you're on for that <laughs> particular game. Usually you can tell immediately behind by how you're dressed. Uh, you're dressing differently for the TV game probably, but um, I, but a lot of it, I think, just comes with time, and it and it eventually becomes fairly natural um, of of how to call the game. You know, with television, there's just so much more equipment, and there's monitors, and there's somebody in your ear uh, mm. about the graphics or about going to break, and so it's you're you're very mindful, pretty easily and pretty quickly, of what you need to be doing there versus uh, on the radio. And of course, which brings to the final question. And I know we've gone over way past the 30 minute allotted that we agreed to. So you're good, man. <laughs> I enjoy this stuff. <laughs> the Nashville Sound Drowning Third Pod. Was that a sounds decision or was that a decision that you talked about with the bosses and they said, okay, if this gives us more coverage and you know the sounds can be talked about more, then so be it. Yeah, it was, it was both, to be honest. I think a lot of teams have a version of it. Um, some broadcasters have their own kind of personal podcast. I don't. This is more under the umbrella of the team. I just I started to see the opportunity there from my standpoint in doing these pregame interviews with players every day that you, know, <coughs> you literally can't go any more than six minutes or you're going to be running into 
uh, time crunch on your pregame show, mm -hmm. uh, but th there's usually more you want to ask, or those interviews are more about how they're playing that week or how the team is doing and kind of the more immediate future. But there's so many more layers to these guys that I thought it would be fun to have more, uh, more time um, to get them more in depth on other topics or more about their <laughs> background or their college days. And I, I, I only, I would only do it or I only like to do it if I think, and this isn't specific to podcasts, this is kind of broadcasting in general. If I mm -hmm. think it's interesting, um, then I think, then I think I've got enough good, a good enough idea of what's entertaining or um, interesting to then try to provide that to the audience. And so if I think a guy has an interesting background and it would make for a good opportunity to do a podcast out of it, we'll, we'll do it in that format. So but at the same time, from the team standpoint, you know, they love the additional content um, and opportunities can come from that uh, for sponsorships and advertising and things like that, uh, in, just like they can in other ways around the team. So I think it's mutually beneficial, but they didn't, they didn't demand that I do it, nor did I just say, hey, here's what I'm doing. It was a collaborative effort, but I think it's been it's been fun to do. I uh, wish I could do more of them. They're, they're, they're not easy to produce and get published, as you know, uh, in the busyness of a season when there's a million other things going on. So I don't do it daily or weekly necessarily or as much as I'd like. Um, but I think the, the content is interesting and um, it's usually an opportunity to get a little bit deeper into a player's background and story than I can when I have them on a pregame show before a game that particular night. Okay, that brings up Tim Dillard. <laughs> and uh, yeah, we have to go here. Probably one of my favorite interviews on the pod. And I know that was probably one of your favorites because I know you and him were just literally like you and I are doing here, talking and having a grand old time. Yeah. But what was it like dealing with Tim Dillard, the player, and then as just a regular guy when you're just talking to him on the pod? Well, as a player, he's really good. He's good at his job. He takes it very seriously. I've told him this on the air and off. I think it's easy <clears throat> for people to think he jokes about everything. Well, when he's in a game, he's, he's angry. He's intense. He wants to do well, just like anybody else would. He's no different than anybody else, even though he's such a character off the field. Um, but from a podcast standpoint or interview standpoint, just as a person, he's so fun. He's such a great guy. You know, if, if, if we, the broadcaster are looking for content or something <laughs> unique or entertaining, I know I'm going to get that from him every time. And they're, they're also, it's also really easy to prepare. He's such a great guest because you can go in any direction and he will have a thought he will have a joke. He will have an opinion. Um, so it's not like, all right, I got to think of my, my five questions here for, for Tim. Otherwise, uh, he's just going to give me a one word answer and I'm going to struggle. I could just, I can be as open-ended with him as I need to be. Uh, and I try not to get lazy when I interview him because I still want to make sure I'm, I'm navigating down a road, even though I don't always know what direction that's going to go in, but he's, he's great. Um, and, and uh, hopefully we get some games here soon when I can watch him, <laughs> when I can watch him pitch and then get him on the pregame show the next day. His best start was the one where the sounds literally almost had, what was it, no bullpen, and he gave yep. almost eight strong. It was either seven or seven and two-thirds innings of just masterpiece pitching. And I mean, it felt it like, like he did that every time he pitched last year. There were so yeah. many, I feel like there were so many times where his 
his spot in the rotation would come around and we were shorthanded and no off day for a while. And he would, he would deliver every time. That's why I say he takes so much pride in his job and it, he wants to get to the big leagues again, just like anybody else. And it's easy to kind of forget that because he's so, he's so engaging in other ways, but at the end of the day, he's a professional pitcher, really good at his job and trying to get back to the big leagues. And I could do this all day, but I know you have other things to do. And Oh, the sound simulations of the schedule and so on and so forth, those are pretty accurate. Are those being done by the sounds or how yes. does it all work with the, cause I've seen, I've seen a few of those and I'm like, wow, how are they doing the simulation stuff, even though there's no games? Yeah. The, the simulation is all through the video game. And, um, and then once the outcome is determined and the plays and highlights are, are downloaded off of the game, I'll get not a script, but I'll get kind of bullet points of how the game went. Cause I'm not the one actually doing the simulation. I'm just, I'm just voicing uh, the, the recap to go with it. And then I'll just record that and send it. And our awesome digital team kind of puts it all together. Uh, it's pretty slick. And the, the man, that, that video game MLB, the show is awesome. It's just the fact that you can even have all the minor league teams on there yeah, because really I'm like, cool. how? But then, but then the, 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 the specifics are really impressive. Like, they've got the guy's stance down, and he's never even been to the big leagues yet. And, and <laughs> uh, it's really impressive. Uh, I love watching the recaps. Not, I, I hate hearing my voice, but I like watching the recaps <laughs> because I, I think uh, just the, the footage is, is awesome. That that's where, we at, that's where we're at uh, with our technology to be able to do something like that. Speaking of listening back... <clears throat> This is definitely my last question. I know we've gone at least over two hours and hopefully we will have baseball soon. Hopefully, hopefully we'll have all sports soon and we can all get back to what the new normal is going to look like and be like, but how much do you listen back and what are you listening for from your standpoint? Um, I, I listen back, um, I don't listen back a ton during the season uh, for baseball. Um, I, but if I, you know, if I hear something or I think I said something in the game, or I think I should have described something better, or if there's a particular play, I'll certainly go back right away. Um, but, you know, on the post game show, we're replaying some of the highlights mm -hmm. uh, anyway. And that's kind of a good uh, quick, immediate, uh, way of saying, yeah, I, yeah, it calls okay, or I like it, or I hate it, or whatever. So I'm sort of listening back right there. Um, but I don't, I don't listen back to like full games or full innings during the season unless um, there's a reason why I, I need to go back and do that. Um, and and similar to basketball and football in the immediate aftermath mm -hmm. um, for the television work for basketball, I'll, I'll go back and look at it a little bit to make sure. Uh, I like something or if I felt like the, the open didn't go well, or I want to make sure that I'm engaging uh, the analyst enough, I'll, I'll go back um, because I know I've got, you know, only seven or eight of those games compared to 140. So my opportunities to correct something are fewer there. Um, so I'll, I'll go back maybe a little bit more frequently on some of my, my basketball uh, television work before the, the next game is going to come up to make sure that I'm, making the adjustments and, and doing what I need to do to, to, to make the broadcast uh, go as well as it can. And this has been a blast. I mean, hope we get to do this again and hopefully <clears throat> we can talk about games, hopefully eventually in the near future. 
I'd be all for that. <laughs> let's let's get back on the field. But either way, I, I appreciate you having me and reaching out, and uh, really enjoyed it. I, I um, you know, whether somebody's doing their first game or their one thousandth or ten thousandth or whatever, I think we always need to be working on getting better. And and I'm in that group, so I enjoy talking about the craft because I think uh, <laughs> part of the fun of it is is you never have a perfect broadcast, but you're always trying to have one. As Vince Lombardi says, you always, you, I mean, you want to have a perfection, but you're always chasing it. That's right. You're always right. chasing it. And if you don't yep. try to chase perfection, then what's the point of even doing it? Even though you know right. you're not going to be perfect, the idea is to at least try to get there. That's right. That's the idea. Thank you, Jeff. You bet, Luther.